welcome to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. I'm June Grosso. Every day we bring you insight and analysis into the most important legal news of the day. You can find more episodes of the Bloomberg Law Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com podcasts. U.S. regulators have granted conditional approval to CVS and Aetna for their proposed $68 billion merger that promises to transform the healthcare sector. Speaking with Bloomberg last month, CVS CEO Larry Merlo told Bloomberg why the deal would be good for the whole country. The need for uh, innovation, disruption, transformation, and the combination of CVS Health and Aetna is you know, going to you know, work absolutely on that. My guest is Nick Economides, a professor at NYU Stern School of Business. Nick, the approval comes just a few weeks after the Justice Department signed off on a $54 billion deal combining health insurer Cigna with pharmacy benefits manager Express Scripts. Now it's approving the combination of one of the top U.S. drugstore chains with the third biggest health insurer. What's your take on this consolidation in the healthcare care market? Well, uh, first of all, uh, I, I wanted to note that uh, the Department of Justice doesn't have any problem w- with this vertical mergers, while it did have a problem with the AT&T Time Warner <laughs> merger. So I don't quite understand how it can be consistent to intervene in one vertical merger and not intervene in others. But um, the, the crucial thing here is to understand whether um, post the merger uh, there might be actions by one of the parties, let's say Aetna, uh, to restrict um, its insured uh, customers to um, guide them to go only to CVS. Uh, to fulfill prescriptions, to do uh, various things. And that would be a serious uh, concern. Now, of course, this is something that hasn't happened yet. So the Department of Justice says, well, we're we're going to approve the the merger and let's see what happens. So, but at the same time, after this thing happens, it might be very hard for the Department of Justice to do anything. Well, the deal was opposed by consumer organizations who said consumers could end up with higher drug prices and fewer choices. But Megan Delrahim, the head of the antitrust division, said the deal has the potential to improve the quality and lower the costs of the healthcare services for American consumers. Which side has the better argument there? Well, you know, it, it, it's hard to say. I mean, they, uh, I, I would say that it's more likely, I would side more with the consumer groups. I would worry about um, the possibility that post-merger we will see behaviors that are going to be restrictive for consumers and ex post more expensive uh, for, for, for consumers. Uh, the fact that the, the deal has a potential of, 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 a, of a lot of good new things, it's, it's true. Uh, one has to ask the question whether a multi-billion dollar merger is required to create the positive stuff. I mean, couldn't the, these two companies have some joint agreement and created a, a lot of the positive stuff without having to merge? I mean, that's something that people, especially in finance, and these companies are exposed to significant amounts of debt, have to ask, uh, is, it, is it really necessary to merge to be able to get benefits across the two companies? Well, could this deal also put pressure on rivals like Walgreens to come up with their own deals? 
Absolutely. Uh, I think the pressure is there and the pressure is huge. Um, they're going to be uh, pressure to uh, uh, combine uh, retailers, uh, PBMs, uh, personal benefit managers, and uh, insurance companies uh, to the extent possible to be able to rival, to, to be able to, to deal with the rivalry with now the combined uh, Aetna CVS. Uh, and the Cigna Express uh, Express scripts uh, mergers. Nick, explain. Yeah. Explain yeah. for you know for in, in layman's terms how consolidation has increased across the healthcare sector and, and the effects you see. Well, you know there are think of this as three pieces: the the insurer, the personal benefits manager and the retailer um the insurer gets a prescription from a from a doctor and and pays it the 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 pbm uh determines essentially how much money the retailer is going to get and how much money the insurance is going to get uh, and then the, the retailer uh, fulfills the prescription now in the beginning we have three different parties, and each one plays its role, and each one is in, 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 in a competitive market dealing with rivals. Now, if you start combining them vertically, uh, then you reduce the amount of competition that can expect, you can expect horizontally between insurer and insurance, PBM and PBM, and retailer to retailer. So that's kind of the danger here, that we create silos. Um, going all the way vertically, uh, which might uh, reduce um, the consumer's choice and also uh, increase what the consumers ultimately pay, maybe not directly, but what uh, their employers pay, for example, for insurance. All right. Always a pleasure to have you on, Nick, with your insights. That's Nick Economides. He is a professor at NYU Stern School of Business. Yesterday in Washington, FBI Director Christopher Wray testified before the Senate Homeland Security Committee where he warned lawmakers of the threat coming from China. China in many ways represents the broadest, most complicated, most long-term counterintelligence threat we face. Joining us is William Banks, professor at Syracuse Law School. Bill, Russia is being investigated for interference in the 2016 election. Did Ray downplay the Russia threat and stress the China threat for some reason? Well, it's hard to know. I think that, you know, the China... uh, Issues have become more prominent lately. Uh, as you know, we've actually been able to bring to the United States, pursuant to an extradition, one of those indicted for economic espionage on behalf of China. Uh, and indeed, even late in the Clinton—I mean, in the Obama administration—there were indictments against Chinese hackers. So I think, you know, with the 2016 election put to one side, I think it's fair to say that China has been the more dominant cyber threat for the United States over the last several years. He also said that the policy won't allow him to even confirm or deny if there's an investigation into that story that you saw in Bloomberg Businessweek about the use of malicious chips in servers. Uh, I know he said don't read anything into that, but it's really hard not to read something into that. That story has uh, caused a lot of controversy. And, and indeed, you know, that because of the need to protect the intelligence sources and methods that uh, could have 
given the story and could have given the, the Bureau uh, what it needed to know or the other parts of the intelligence community what it needed to know to uh, trace down the hackers and to try to uh, supply patches and the like. It's, uh, it, it, it's a very uh, unsettling develop- set of developments, but I, I think we're probably going to learn more about the exact uh, extent and nature of that damage before too long. Bill, has the FBI suffered in any respects, and has has our counterterrorism operations and intelligence operations suffered because of the attacks on the FBI and the pressure that's been put on them? I would say that it has not suffered so far, but uh, you know the, the the condemnation and the partisan bashing that's gone on for. Uh, a good part of the last year and a half or year and two year and three quarters almost is uh, bound to take an effect if it continues. I think the the professionals at the top and the line people and the jobs that are doing this uh, work are dedicated professionals who are committed to public service and uh, they won't be uh, derailed by the the kind of attacks that have been given. But again, uh, yesterday, in addition to Mr. Ray, the former general counsel, Jim Baker, also testified. And, you know, he's no longer in the job. He's off doing other things now. But he was, I think, very uh, much of the mind that the Bureau is uh, is doing the job that it set out to do without any kind of uh, effective political interference at all. Uh, Ray also told senators, I want to push back on that a little bit, because they did that Kavanaugh investigation. They reopened it. They did more of a background check on him. And he said that it followed the usual process, although he did concede that it was a very limited scope, limited by the White House. Can you square that circle for us? Well, yeah, it's true. Uh, He didn't say very much at all, Chris Ray, about the investigation, other than to say it was like other limited background investigations. What he did say, in addition, was that the direction for the the scope and nature of the investigation came from the White House, not the Senate. That's unusual, of course, in that it was the Senate who was passing muster on uh, Judge Kavanaugh, not the, the White House. They'd already selected him for the position. So you'd think that the Senate should have set the terms of the investigation. But here, uh, you know, some kind of arrangement was made between the leadership of the Senate uh, Judiciary Committee and the White House. And the White House then became the point in in striking the uh, terms of the investigation with the FBI. I suppose it was Don McGahn and White House counsel, uh, which would explain the very narrow uh, focus of the investigation. In other words, the Bureau did what it was told. The New York Times did report that Don McGahn was the one giving instructions, the limiting instructions to the FBI. But in Ray's testimony, he was between the proverbial rock and a hard place in thinking about what the president, how the president might react and what he would say. Well, that's true. Chris Ray had an incentive not to say very much and simply to repeat sort of boilerplate that had been offered since last week when the investigation was agreed to, that it was going to be limited, uh, that they were going to see the, you know, they were going to interview those few witnesses and not expand or look at others who had come forward or to further, you know, check the or corroborate or, or investigate uh, whether uh, Judge Kavanaugh had lied during his testimony about his high school activities. He did say that there was a lot of communication about this. And during the process between the White House and the FBI, how appropriate, how normal is that? Well, it's, it's, it's uh, 
the FBI Security Division works uh, for the Department of Justice, but uh, both in turn work for the President of the United States. So he's he's certainly able to uh, supply direction as he may. I think it's uh, it has the appearance that he might have been trying to tilt the dire- you know the scope of the investigation or the terms of it in in a direction more favorable to Judge Kavanaugh. And you know I'd say that's too bad. The Senate could have done, uh, could have taken uh, control of it and broadened the investigation. We're told the FBI to simply go where the facts lead it, but it didn't take that opportunity either. Bill Ray also made his f- most forceful comments so far about the threat from weaponized drones, and that's just as U.S. law enforcement and Homeland Security agencies have gotten legal authority to monitor and, at times, if necessary, disable drones. What does that tell you about the what the FBI knows, the information coming in? Well, I think it is a worrisome uh, development, and, and it comes at a time when the, the so-called jurisdiction, to use the legal term, over drone domestic drone use is uh, unclear. Uh, Department of Homeland Security, the Department of Transportation, the Federal Aviation Administration, state and local governors, state and local legislatures, the FBI, state and local police, marshal services, all have a hand in monitoring and and perhaps regulating the domestic drone use. So when intelligence comes in that suggests there's some nefarious possibilities afoot in the United States, one, that shouldn't be a surprise. Uh, And two, it's going to, I think, put pressure on the government to uh, figure out who's in charge in this respect. So maybe we won't have Amazon drones around yet for quite a while. Thanks so much, Bill. That's William Banks. He's a professor at Syracuse Law School. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcast. I'm June Grosso. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.